everybody serves in their own way. This is a way that you can actually serve your fellow citizens in a face-to-face way. And that's incredibly valuable. When you see the resilience of the people of this nation and you get to help build that resilience by supporting folks in their time of need, it's an incredibly valuable and incredibly worthwhile experience. I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. In 2006, Congress gave the Secretary of Homeland Security the authority to create a surge capacity force consisting of non-FEMA employees from various federal agencies. The surge capacity force was intended to augment FEMA staff during presidentially declared disasters, when disaster response and recovery activities begin to stress FEMA's own staffing. The surge capacity force has been deployed only twice, during the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy and the 2017 Atlantic hurricane season. In fact, from August 2017 through February 2018, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, activated the surge capacity force to support disaster response efforts for Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria, as well as the California wildfires. During this activation, FEMA deployed both DHS employees and expanded participation in the Department of Homeland Security's surge capacity force to other federal agencies. Over 4,000 Surge Capacity Force volunteers were successfully deployed and integrated into FEMA disaster operations. During this historic activation, many Surge Capacity Force members fulfilled key leadership roles and extended their deployments beyond the initial 45 days to continue serving survivors and communities in need. On this episode, we talked to John Rabin from FEMA about the unique aspects of the Surge Capacity Force and how FEMA can rely on its federal partners to rise to the challenge of helping Americans in our greatest times of need. John, Region 2 oversees Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Last year was an incredibly active hurricane year, and it really stressed the capabilities of FEMA uh, and our partners, but also FEMA staff. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. We had, um, in, in FEMA Region 2, one of the interesting parts about being in FEMA Region 2, since it's New York, New Jersey, and the regional offices at the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan, the FEMA Region 2 staff is oftentimes, not only are they responding to the disaster and, and exercising our programs in recovery for the disaster, but oftentimes they are survivors themselves. Uh, when, when Sandy hit in 2012, that affected a significant portion of the, of the regional staff who all lived in uh, who lived in Region 2 and was affected by Sandy. So whether it was themselves or their families or their friends or their communities, they all were affected by it. And in Puerto Rico, uh, that was the same thing when Irma hit first and then Maria. It is not just us affecting our job, but these are the storms are hitting our colleagues and our friends and our families. And that's a, that adds a level of stress to the, to the response as well. You know, I think the public would be surprised to know how small FEMA is as an agency. So the size of our workforce, we have a, a couple of different types of employees. Can you walk me through those types? Sure. So we have um, we have a, 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 we have a multiple types of employees at FEMA. We have our PFTs, our our full time. Uh, permanent full-time employees that are mostly in headquarters and in the regional offices. And then we have our core employees that are our are, are, are response folks that um, the cadre of on-call response employees. 
Uh, and that makes up a lot of our folks that actually respond to the disasters. We also have reservists, and our reservists are another version of our on-call employees who we call when there are disasters that we need to supplement it if the PFTs and the regional staff and the cores uh, need more support, we bring in our reservists as well. And then uh, once a disaster occurs, we also hire uh, local hires. Those are folks that are hired as lo- from the local community to support our FEMA programs as well. So generally speaking, uh, disaster occurs. The first people that are looking at the disaster from a FEMA perspective are those full-time employees. The people are there all the time. It's really our cores and our PFTs, and especially our folks in the regional office. The regional office is made up of some cores as well as some PFTs, and that's really that first area of, of where we go. And then after that, we go into more of our core employees as well. And then you get to uh, our tier three, which is the surge capacity force, which is our tier three and our tier four uh, responders. So you mentioned this a second ago, but what what is the surge capacity force then? If we have these FEMA employees that are these full-time employees, the cores, uh, which are also full-time employees, and then the reservists, when does the surge capacity... Well, first of all, define what surge capacity force is. Sure. So the surge capacity force is really kind of what its name is. When we get to the point where there are multiple disasters like we saw in 2017 or uh, large disasters like we saw in 2012 with Sandy, where when you start looking at all of the resources that FEMA has, the the, the PFTs, our cores, our reservists, uh, and we still have more requirements for staffing, we can reach out to what's called the Surge Capacity Force. And the Surge Capacity Force is exactly what the name is. It's a force of folks that we can surge to help build our capacity. Uh, the Surge Capacity Force came out of PCEMRA, the Post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act in 2006. Uh, and PCAMRA requires the, the department to have this on-call group of folks to uh, supplement FEMA staff. Um, it includes not just our DHS folks, but also our our uh, folks from other executive branches as well. So that's what the Surge Capacity Force uh, is. And we have uh, used them only twice. Uh, so since the since PCAMRA, we've used them once in Sandy, and we used them again this fall in 2017. Was it always uh, that the surge capacity force was open to other federal agencies, or was it initially DHS? Um, it's always been open to both uh, to other federal agencies and DHS. Um, we normally use the DHS folks first. That's the tier three aspect of this because um, it's it's a little easier to reach them. We all have the same boss, so that helps be able to reach the surge capacity of the DHS components a little bit easier. Um, what kind of what kind of jobs do they? They fail. So we take the surge capacity force and we embed them and use them in, <clears throat> in really all of our cadres. So we have 23 cadres. That's everything from our our disaster um, our disaster assistance folks to safety and security to logistics to operations. All of our cadres of how we structure and organize our our disaster workforce and the surge capacity force folks can fit into all of those. So the way it works is when the surge capacity force gets uh, alerted and, and everybody signs up for the surge capacity force through their component. So every component has a point of contact and that point of contact registers folks and keeps folks um, signed up for the surge capacity force. When we need them, uh, the secretary or the administrator makes a request to the secretary. The secretary then sends out a note activating the surge capacity force. And folks that are in the surge capacity force receive emails and alert notifications through FEMA to report to wherever the staging area is going to be. And for 
2017, we sent them all to CDP, the Center for Domestic Preparedness in Anniston, Alabama, where we had a personnel mobilization center, a PMC, that brought all of the surge capacity folks in there. And when they got in there, what they did is they came in there and we asked them a bunch of questions, filled out a bunch of forms so that we gathered all of their skills that they had, and then we provided them some just-in-time training to build off of those skills, and then we sent them to wherever their skills were best suited into what cadre, into what part of the disaster. It's important to note, though, here that sometimes the needs of the disaster uh, override the skills that the surge capacity force, or really, for that matter, anybody in FEMA does. So early on in, a, in, uh, in this disaster, we needed more people to handle, uh, to work in our NIPSIs, our, our National Processing Service Centers, which require, which is where uh, survivors use the 1-800 number to call FEMA and register for assistance. We were between the millions of people in Houston and Texas and in Puerto Rico and in the Virgin Islands and in Florida and the rest of the East Coast for Irma, we had a, a, a need to to get the NIPSIs needed more of the surge capacity for. So we sent folks there to go answer phones and do the registrations that were needed. And they got like on the on the job training. All about on the job training. We here in field operations, we have a whole group of about a hundred folks that do just in time training at the PMC in Alabama or at JFOs or at the NIPSIs, wherever the force is needed, we'll go out there and do the training to make sure that they have the training necessary to do the jobs. It sounds really easy. Uh, and this is sort of a question that I have. How do you get to a point where you can tap into resources beyond what your agency has? As quickly as that, sure. Uh, in um, government, I think there's a couple of answers to that. Number one is folks that join the surge capacity force. Actually, I'll, I'll even back up a little further. When you join the government, whether it's the local government, the state government, the federal government, you join the the, the military services. You are an you're you're an optimist, and you want to help people. So when we send the call out that says we need help, we have people that are breaking the doors down to come help us because that's why we all join the federal government is to help people. So we get a lot of folks that are already there to help. When you read about when you read about disasters that are happening and you see the suffering of our fellow citizens, folks want to help, and that's everybody from communities and individuals all the way up to our partners and our colleagues in the federal government. So these folks are motivated to help people. And then all we, what, what we need to do at that point is how do we channel that, get them all in here and get them through our process to get them to help survivors as quickly as we can. So what makes it, what makes it challenging is to deal with the, the, the processing and the bureaucracy of it. What is incredibly rewarding is seeing the amount of people that want to help and helping these guys, uh, helping them to help us. There has to be uh, for lack of a better word, bureaucratic hurdles to making this happen. Sure. Um, so, you know, for the people who are interested in government and how government works, each agency is appropriated funds to do their mission. Yep. And when you are bringing in employees who are appropriated for that agency and that agency's mission onto into our fold in our agency, in our agency's mission. How does that, how does that work? Sure. So, uh, yes, there's always, uh, there's always process challenges and bureaucratic challenges um, in, in any government, for that matter, not just the federal government. So the way we handle those is we 
the surge capacity force is a priority of the secretary. It's, uh, and when it's a priority of the secretary, it becomes a priority for the components. And when it's a priority for the components, it becomes a priority for the agency, the, the entire department. So when we go out there and request people to volunteer and join the, the service, we are working with those employees to get them trained and get them ready to go so they can deploy to help. And that's what our surge capacity force managers do uh, here in field operations that work with the component uh, surge capacity force points of contact. We also have a management structure there. Uh, we've got a division director and some other managers and then the deputy assistant administrator and the administ assistant administrator who are working on those bureaucratic challenges to make sure that we are smoothing over all of the challenges that we have of taking people from out of a job that they might need to do to make sure that we are providing the resources that they need. We're providing the notification, the communication of how long they're going to be, what jobs they're going to do, things like that. Um, how long are they generally deployed for? So we normally deploy them for, we tell them to expect to be deployed for about 45 days. Um, that's, the, that's a pretty good planning tool for them to know that they'll be gone for 45 days. Um, it's also important for them to know that um, depending on the disaster, uh, it's likely going to be some pretty austere conditions down there. So the concept of having, um, you know, uh, air conditioning and power on a consistent basis is is may not actually happen. So folks need to be prepared that it's going to be austere, it's going to be difficult, um, and they need to understand that those 45 days are going to be very stressful, both emotionally, potentially physically as well. So we want to make sure that the that they understand all the expectations of that. Um, I, you know, I can uh, echo that. When I was uh, working in Florida for Irma, I, I think... As you watch the news and you see the coverage of the impacts of uh, the storm in, in Puerto Rico, you can understand those austere conditions. But you often don't realize that as we're moving large amounts of staff to support people all throughout the state of Florida, you think, well, I'm going to Florida. There's probably plenty of hotels. It's not going to be that um, that rustic. And I'm not saying it was rustic in, in Florida, but we did require um, people to sleep on cots because we're moving large amounts of people and you don't want to take up hotel space for survivors. That's exactly right. That's a, um, that's a really important point to make is that our, our mission is to help survivors. And if that means that we are going to take a hotel room that could be used by a, a survivor or a family, we're not going to do that. So we oftentimes, especially in these large disasters, have uh, bring in a structure with our logistics partners to set up base camps to allow for folks to um, rest more in the field in those some of all those austere conditions to ensure that the survivors who are our priority have the hotel rooms to be able to see that we never want to compete with them. So we will always err on the side of allowing more of that space for them. And I think we did that uh, in Texas for Hurricane Harvey, right? Yep, we do, we do it in uh, in a lot of them uh, in. Uh, Almost all of the major disasters were prepared to do all of that to make sure that the survivors are the priority. It's totally voluntary, though. Um, so an employee, say, of Customs and Border yep. Protection, if they wanted to join the surge capacity force, it's totally right. up it's to totally them up whether to, or it's not. It's totally up to the individuals to be able to do that. We like we've got we work with the components to sort of set some targets, for lack of a better term, of how many people we'd like to join the, the surge capacity force. Um, so we we look at the surge capacity force from the individual, and then as we talk to them uh, at the leadership level to the component leadership, there's two points that um, we do to sort of solve some of that bureaucracy. Number 
one is we actually mission assign the surge capacity folks to uh, from the components to FEMA. So what that means is is that that allows for um, that allows for us to uh, provide some compensation for them to pay them so that their work that they're doing for us actually gets paid for by uh, our disaster funding mechanism. So that's a that's an important part of solving some of that some of that. Um, uh, some of that bureaucratic challenge. Additionally, when they work overtime, we cover the overtime as well, because in a disaster, as you can imagine, there's no such thing as an eight and a half hour workday. Yeah, the workday starts when it starts and ends when it ends, um, because that's we are doing our best to relieve suffering and help it's survivors. And it's a 24-hour day job, especially in the early parts of the disaster. It's at all hands on deck for all day. I wonder if you've heard any feedback from any surge capacity members? Sure. Talking about their experiences. Yep. We've had uh, a bunch of feedback from some surge capacity folks. Um, for the most part, they absolutely love it. Um, they get to do things differently. They get to help people. They get to do jobs that they would never have thought that they were going to do, whether it is working in uh, logistics, running, um, you know, working at, in warehouses and moving uh, equipment and moving pallets of food to actually handing and delivering food and water to survivors. It's the interaction with survivors. It's the, inter it's the interaction with their citizens that these folks uh, are most get the most out of, enjoy the most, and find the most rewarding. So there are a couple of different stories that we've heard, one of which was we had uh, a person from NASA who was actually out in the Virgin Islands who was running a, a disaster recovery center, you know, works in NASA, probably sends people to space and uh, is helping do the DRC and could not, was talking to our deputy administrator about how much he was really enjoying it and getting a tremendous amount of of joy and satisfaction from that job. And that was a great story that uh, I think stuck with a lot of other folks. We had other folks that were in Irma in Florida who was not only a, she was a DHS employee, but not only was she a uh, going out there and helping folks and doing what's called the, the our DSA, our, our, our disaster survivor assistance teams and going out there and getting people to register and finding out what their needs were and, and doing some uh, understanding of what the conditions in the field were. But she was also understood the, the, the general role that FEMA plays in this, where when you, when you sit there and see that FEMA's job is to coordinate that federal response. So when you see DOD assets that are out there, when you see ICE assets that are out there and HHS assets that are out there and the Corps of Engineers, all of that is a, all of that is a representative of how FEMA coordinates the entire federal response to disasters. If I were an employee of another agency and I were on the fence about, um, you know, talking to my supervisor about joining the search capacity force, what would you tell them? I would tell them that they have the opportunity to help people when their fellow citizens need them the most. And there's nothing more rewarding than that. When you are out there in the field and you're dealing with uh, people that have lost their homes or have, have lost, um, lost their jobs, have lost their homes, they've been totally damaged, their communities, their friends, their families, all those things have been dramatically and uh, affected by a disaster. When you can go out there and help them, there is nothing more rewarding than that. And everybody serves in their own way. Um, whether you serve uh, your community, you serve your family, you serve your your uh, your church or synagogue or mosque, everybody serves in their own way. This is a way that you can actually serve your fellow citizens in a face-to-face -face way, and that's incredibly valuable. It 
also gets to the point where you get to showcase what is great about this nation. When you see the resilience of the people of this nation and you get to help build that resilience by supporting folks in their time of need, it's an incredibly valuable and incredibly worthwhile experience. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.